Right to be read podcast, episode number 78. Interview with James Thorne. Are you struggling trying to figure out how to sell copies of your book, especially the first 100 copies? The Author Marketing Institute is offering access to their latest free video course called Selling the First 100 Copies of Your Book. This is the course everyone should have when they started publishing. It goes through all the basics from starting a mailing list to experimenting with different prices. If you follow the instructions in this course, you should be primed and ready to sell your first 100 copies, if not many more. Sign up for free at www.authormarketinginstitute.com. You are listening to the Right to be Read podcast, and this is your host, Ani Alexander. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to be Read podcast, the podcast that inspires and encourages writers. I'm your host, Annie Alexander. And when I was starting recording this episode, I just realized that in the previous one, I was talking about spring, I was talking about warmer weather, the sunshine, and how nice everything was. Uh, well, today I'm looking out of the window and it's snowing heavily, and we have everything covered with snow. So things changed quite fast, uh, not towards the direction I preferred, but still, you know, we, we've got changes over here. And before I start uh, and introduce my very interesting guest today, I would like to remind you that if you would like to have your book published in just eight weeks and in between that period, also learn loads of things about self-publishing, book marketing and all the things that I've learned so far and I'm using on a daily basis, please uh, check out uh, com slash masterclass. So let's start the show now. Today I have a very special guest. Today's episode is going to be a very different one. Uh, um, we're having James Thorne over here and um, James is someone who believes that reading dark fiction can be healing and he admires strong people who are not afraid to speak their mind and in his 30s James started writing horror and formed a heavy metal band and what's very impressive, in March of 2014, Thorne held the number five position in horror alongside his childhood idols, Dean Kuntz and Stephen King. Hello, James. I'm really happy to have you over. Oh, I'm great. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, you know, I have to be honest. Uh, I personally don't read horror. <laughs> and uh for me, it's something, I mean, I, I don't know, even I, I never even tried, but I should maybe because, you know, I can't even explain why I don't read horror. Maybe if I try, I will like it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just wondering, how did you choose that genre and how did you start writing horror? Or were you writing horror from the very start or you changed something later on? Just what happened? Tell us your story. Sure. Uh I don't think anyone's ever asked me um, if I chose horror or not. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think hor for me, horror is like pizza. Um, if, <laughs> every, almost everyone loves pizza, but 
pizza can can vary it can vary greatly in the crust and the toppings and how it's made and 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 pizza can be very very different and I I think horror is kind of like that in a way. Um, I don't know if I necessarily said or decided I was going to be a horror writer. I think what I did and and what I recommend other writers do when you're starting out is is just write the story you want to read and don't worry don't worry about if it's horror or if it's romance or if it's paranormal just write the story that you want to read the one that's really motivating you because writing a novel is is a long lonely process and if you are not really excited about what you're doing if you're just writing a book because you think it's going to fit into a into a hot genre or you're seeing that selling on the charts it's going to be hard and i think readers will pick up on that so in in my instance um as as you mentioned in in the in the opening bio there i've always been a huge fan of stephen king and dean koontz and although they're labeled horror writers i i i think what they really write about is just the human condition i think their mm-hmm. stories are more rooted in um, they're very character driven and they're very real and fear is something that we all deal with on, on some level or another. So I know horror in the literary world doesn't quite get the respect that other genres or subgenres get and I don't really care too much about that honestly. But I also think it scares a lot of people off, no pun <laughs> intended, uh, because you know people think horror is just all like slasher movie, blood and gore, gratuitous violence and there's a whole spectrum of horror, and, and most of the stuff that I write is not that way. Uh, in fact, it's more psychological. It's more suspenseful, I think, than sort of gory. Oh, that, that's even scarier, actually, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I think it is, but, uh, but some people don't. But I, I think it's much scarier because the demons in our own minds are way fright, more frightening than any creature that we can create. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, okay, so what, uh, let's just start from the beginning. Can you tell us um, when you wrote your very first book, let's say, and you completed your first draft of the manuscript? What happened later? Did you know what you were supposed to do with the book? Did you, I mean, how did you get where you are now? Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a long road. Um, I'll, I'll mention too, and maybe you can put this in your show notes. I did a presentation at Author Marketing Live here in Cleveland, Ohio uh-huh. in the fall. And uh, Jim Kukrell, who runs uh, the Author Marketing Institute, was able to uh, videotape that. And I have that up on my bio page on my website. And that's a, that would be a great thing if you're, sort of a, if you're starting out and you're not really sure what to do. If you watch that video, you'll know all the things not to do because I made all the mistakes you shouldn't make. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, basically what I did um, is I was uh, reading in, I would say, in the mid-2000s, say from 2005 to 2008, I was really into epic fantasy, uh, high fantasy, stuff like Tolkien and, and George R. R. Martin. And I was, I, you know, as a reader, you get into these sort of phases where you're, you just read something and you're really into it. And I was really into fantasy at that time. And for some reason, I decided that I wanted to write one. I thought, wow, that, wouldn't that be fun? Like if I'm, I'm really enjoying this as a reader, what if I could write the, sto- the exact story I wanted to read? And, and that's how I got started. And the first thing I did uh, is I went and I picked up Stephen King's On Writing, and I sort of used that book as my guide. I read it from cover to cover. I took notes. Uh, I basically just followed his process uh, 
to get me through you know, the, the first draft. And when I was done with the first draft, at that time, this was, this was probably 08 or 09, so the, the Kindle revolution hadn't begun yet. And at that time, really your only options were to query agents. Mm-hmm. So when I finished that first manuscript, uh, and, and in fact, that's what Stephen King had recommended in his book, because that's what the case was at that time as well. I just started querying agents, and I started sending, sending letters out. And I, I, I kept them for a while. Um, I, I received oh, dozens and dozens of rejection letters, um, as most writers do. And yeah, then it, even Stephen King mentions in his book that he, he also like, you know, received oh, yeah. loads of rejections himself. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. If, if you can't take criticism um, or if you can't accept rejection, writing is not the business for you. Um, if you if you are hypersensitive, if you are really emotionally attached to your art so much so that you you can't strive to make it better or want to become better, um, you're in for a long long road. And uh, and not everyone's cut out for that. I mean, mm-hmm. when you when you publish and you have your work on a platform and people start to review it, um, you better be ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because even the best books are going to get really harsh criticism and if you can't take that and if you you know if that bothers you this is definitely not the business for you but um but anyways so i uh i I think the tipping point for me is when i stopped receiving rejection letters so as i was receiving rejection letters i thought like i was making progress i'm like okay sooner or later i'm gonna i'm gonna get an acceptance but then what started to happen and i think this is because agents were just becoming overwhelmed with queries is I stopped getting any response at all. Mm-hmm. So I would send out letters and emails and I would get nothing. Uh, and that was the point where I said, okay, if, if I really want to really get this thing published, then I'm going to have to do it myself. And that was really about the time when the, the Kindle, uh, Kindle revolution started. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you published it on Amazon. I did. And, uh, and this, <laughs> this is well documented in the video that I mentioned. Uh, I, I made serious, serious mistakes in that process the, the biggest one is i i didn't have it edited so i uh, uh, i had I the uploaded. same one yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i didn't know any better and i and i thought well i'm a writer i i know i understand grammar and punctuation i can edit my own work and and i fundamentally don't believe that's true um i know there's a there are there are some writers for example dean Koontz, who um you know he obsesses on the page he doesn't move on from a page until he has it absolutely perfect um, I, I don't think most writers produce that way. I, I, I don't think that's a long-term sustainable way to write. I think you kind of have to write in stages. And especially before it gets published, uh, you have to have an editor. And, and whether or not Dean Koontz wrote that way or not or does write that way, he probably has a whole team of editors at his publishing house that <laughs> goes over his manuscript before he publishes it. So I, I made a major mistake. I put it up too early. Uh, I was crucified on the reviews. Um, it's a whole long drawn out drama, but I basically figured out what to do by failing over and over and over again. Ah, uh, okay, I see. Okay, so we will. Um, I will put the link in the show notes, and people will watch the video and find out all the mistakes that you've made. <laughs> yeah, but, hopefully they can learn from that. <laughs> uh, so let's then, you know, look from the other angle and see what did you do that actually worked well and kind of made you get closer to where you are now. Yeah, I, I would. I think the. I'm a I'm a very stubborn person, and I don't give up easily. 
<laughs> and, uh, and my wife would probably attest to that. But uh, I, in, in a way, I think that's, that's sort of the intangible quality that I think writers have to have. It, it really isn't so much about talent. I mean, you know, people, I think talent is very overrated. I think perseverance is probably essential to becoming a writer. You, you have to write no matter what. You have to write when you don't feel like writing. You have to write when what you think you're writing is garbage. You have to write when people tell you what you're writing is garbage. You just have to keep writing and you have to keep growing. And you, and you, have, to, and you have to persevere. I, you know, I think if you, if you give up uh, easily, you're, you're not going to be a successful writer because there are way more rejections than there are uh, rewards in this business. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in the beginning. So yes. <laughs> you know, later yes. on, further down the road, maybe it's easier. But, you know, in the very beginning, it's, you know, it's, it's quite tough. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Not giving up is the, the most difficult, but, you know, <laughs> the most necessary thing that you, you're supposed to do. And uh, when I was doing a small research about you, I came up um, to the fact that when you started writing and when you set up your heavy metal band, your family kind of rolled their eyes and they were not <laughs> extremely supportive about that. Uh, so they thought it's just a stage that will, will pass. So I would like, to, I mean, I think that many of us will relate to the fact that, you know, the people around us, don't really uh, understand or support you emotionally uh, during the the beginning stage. So, how did you deal with that? I mean, what what? How did you feel, and how did you overcome that challenge? Let's say. Yeah, you know, it's not easy, um, and I don't know if I have. I don't know if the way. I don't know if I ever have overcome that. First of all, I still don't get. A tremendous amount of emotional support from my for my family. I'm uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to date myself here. I'm I'm going to be turning 44 this year, and uh, you know I think there's a lot of um, extended family who who still think I, I act like a teenager, and and it's true I do, and I, I'm not I'm not ashamed <laughs> to admit that. But um, I I think it's because I'm never I'm not afraid to chase my dream, and I think that we get conditioned the older we get to sort of play it safe, uh, to, to be a family man, whatever that means, or to, you know, be a good mom or, or, or whatever. And that, that somehow prevents you from chasing your dream. And I just never believed that. And so I think for me, it's just a matter of, of being polite and understanding that they don't understand. Uh, they're not doing it because they don't love me or because they want me to fail. They just, they just don't understand. Uh -huh. uh, and so I, I try and be gracious with them. And even my, you know, immediate family, my, uh, I, I just don't, you know, I don't push it on them. If they ask me about my craft or they ask me about sales, uh, I'll mention it. But I, I don't ask them to read my stuff. I don't ask them to review my books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I just kind of let them be. And I figure, you know, at some point they may or may not uh, embrace it. And, and that's okay. And the other, the other piece of this equation is I have, uh, I have two kids. And they are, they're like 9 and 12. And so when I kind of started this, you know, they were a little bit younger, but even now I want them to see, I want them, I want to be a model for them and show them that, that you should chase what you're passionate about in life, no matter what anyone else thinks about it. And it's not always easy. 
and uh, and you can say it, but I don't think it's as powerful as a parent unless you can show it. And and so that's, I guess that's sort of how I get through that. I don't take it personally, and I want to make sure my, I'm a good role model for my kids and and showing them that there's value in art and that they're um, that they should chase what they want and uh, and that it shouldn't matter what other people think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, how are you keeping the balance between being the family man and you know the the crazy? art person <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it's not easy but um I, I think you have to have some boundaries and I know this is hard as a parent and I and and with a family and a full-time job and and I have all that I uh I, I work for myself but I do have a day job so I have to work my writing into the you know, either the morning or the evening or the weekends or the times that I, I have available uh, writing, I don't make my my entire living on writing. It supplements it, but it's, but I'm not a full time quote unquote full time writer. Mm-hmm. And what I've done, and I think um, it's something. It, it, it's not a conversation you have once, but I have explained to my my wife and my kids that when I'm in my in my office, my home office, and the door is shut, I'm working. Mm-hmm. And unless the house is on fire, <laughs> I you know they're not they're not to disturb me the same way as if I were at an office place. They wouldn't drive there and ask me to get them a glass of milk, right? They would you know that's not something they would do. And so um, it's been hard. And sometimes I've you know my my kids have come into my workroom when I'm working and they have something that's important but not urgent, and I have to turn them away. And and it hurts as a parent, but that's kind of I have to draw those boundaries. And I think now they accept that, and now they know. But uh, when you're starting out, it, it's really important. And the boundaries can be physical. They can be abstract. Uh, you, maybe you have a dedicated writing space, and that's sort of off limits to the other members of the family mm-hmm. while you're working. Or maybe you have a certain time, and you go to a coffee shop, and that's your time. But you have to carve that out, um, because if you don't, you'll never have a chance to make your art. Yeah, exactly. And and as you said, you, it's just, you know, it's a matter of uh, also a discipline, I guess, and from both sides, from your and your families as well, <laughs> to keep those boundaries. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And, and you have to be you have to be disciplined with yourself. If if you're carving out that precious time, you can't waste it. Uh, you know, browsing Facebook or watching YouTube videos. Like you, yeah. you have to sit down and you and you've got to write. Like if if that's your sacred time, you have to be disciplined to use that as well. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and I think uh, you know if you keep just you know uh, distracting yourself, you're just uh, uh, maybe this is not for you. <laughs> if you're so easily <laughs> distracted by Facebook <laughs> while writing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's say, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a strange question, but I, I just thought of it. Like, uh, do you think that one has to have a, you know, strange or weird mind to be able to write horror? Like, you know, since it's so different. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Ah, oh, that wow! I don't know. You you, you stumped me there. That's a, <laughs> um, I'm definitely weird. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean think... all, all writers are weird in general. That's that's the fact. But uh, I just thought that since horror is a specific genre, maybe you know those uh, have to be uh, more weird. Or I don't know. Do we have? Yeah. Do you think there is a specific personality type which is more fit to to write horror? Probably, I, I think that's probably true of any genre fiction. I think you're, 
uh, if you're a romance writer, you probably have a certain mindset that other writers don't. And if you write historical fiction, you probably have a mindset that other genre fiction writers don't have. So I, I don't think it's better or worse, and I, I don't think there's a judgment, but you're right. I think there, I think you probably have to see things in, in a slightly different way. Um, based on the people who I've known uh, in, in my field and the writers that I've worked with and collaborated with and, and are friends with, there are definitely some commonalities. Uh, I noticed that a lot of the writers who are writing horror and dark fantasy are introverted. Um, they are very sensitive. Um, and I, when I mean sensitive, I mean, um, you know, they, they really focus on every word that's both spoken and written. Uh, they, they, they try and read between the lines a lot. Uh, I think there's a lot of, and for better or worse, I think there's a lot of anxiety and depression amongst horror writers. Uh, that may, that may manifest itself in things like, you know, alcohol and drug abuse or, or, or just generalized anxiety. I think I, I've seen a lot of that. Um, and it not, you know, varying degrees. And I have some of that myself, but I think there's probably, that's probably where that, that well of creativity comes from. If you're writing horror, I think if you're, you're tapping into sort of those internalized fears and anxieties that you have as a person and you're, and you're getting those out on the page. And, and I find that therapeutic, like that helps. And I think that's probably true for a lot of hor other horror writers as well. Okay, so you, so you find it healing and, you know, it kind of eases your anxiety and depression while you're writing. Yeah, it's, I don't, yeah, I don't know how I can explain it. Um, I know like whenever, whenever I'm writing, uh, and when I say writing, like I, I have a word, I have a word target every day. And it, when I first started out, it was a thousand words. And now, now I shoot for anywhere from three to 4,000 words a day. And I, I say you should write every day and I don't, and I should, but on the days I don't write, I, I feel off. Um, you know, some people have that feeling like if they go to the gym and they work out mm -hmm. and, and they don't work out a day, they did feel off. Yeah. So I don't know, like, I guess that's sort of healing and I, I can't get, it's hard for me to articulate it, it, whether or not it's therapeutic like a, a, a painkiller would be. But I know that when I write, on the days that I write, I, I feel much better than on days I don't. Okay. So, and when you're writing, do you uh, have any ideal reader in your mind? Or, I mean, how are, are you writing, first of all, for yourself and then only for the reader? Or you have the reader in your mind and you're kind of writing to that reader? Uh I know a lot of writers do have an ideal reader, and, and it may even be a real person. Uh, you know, it might be like a spouse or a best friend or, or something like that. I think for me, um, I'm trying to write the the story that I would want to read, and and I was way off early on. I thought my ideal reader was was me. I thought it was like middle aged men who loved heavy metal and rode motorcycles and drank beer and <laughs> chased women. And and what what I found is that the overwhelming majority of my audience are, are women and, oh. <laughs> and they're older women. And, um, so I was way off on who I thought my ideal reader was. So for me, like I'm not intuitive, uh, intuitive enough to figure that out. And so writing the story that I wanted is gaining me an audience. And, and I, I love that audience and they're very supportive and, and they're fantastic. And I, I, you know, I'm very grateful for them. And so I don't, 
I, for me, I don't feel any need to kind of dig deeper on who it, who's reading my book as long as I know that there are people who are reading it and enjoying it. And that seems to be the case now. So Okay. And do you remember, I mean, since you said that horror writers are very sensitive, and I think all writers are, but do you remember like the very first harsh review and how it impacted you? I mean, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I ab- absolutely. Uh, when I uh, that that first book that we mentioned earlier and uh, in the, spring of the not edited uh, one, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. In spring of 2012, when the uh, the beginning of what they called the Kindle Gold Rush, where you could you know you could put your book up and it would be downloaded, you know, you put it up for free, it would be downloaded tens of thousands of times. Um, I I did that, and in in a week I had that book downloaded 30,000 times, and. Well, I was just convinced I was the next Stephen King, and I was on top of the world. And then the reviews started coming in, and they were one. They were just one one-star review after another. They were just piling on like this is unedited, it's garbage, it's terrible. And there was a moment where I almost shut everything down, where I almost just walked away because I couldn't handle the criticism and. I think part of me knew it was justified. Um, I knew I knew I had I made a mistake, and uh, and it was, and I knew that the writing wasn't as good as it could have been. And it was my first, and I think that's hard for a lot of new writers to get past, as they get emotionally attached to the early stuff because it's so special and it's such an accomplishment. And it is. I'm not I'm not demeaning that at all. But you will grow so much as a writer, and, and I think most writers that I know are almost embarrassed of their early stuff because they've learned so much in mm-hmm. the journey. Uh, but at that time, I was just stung. And I, I, rem- I remember there was a moment where I was sitting at my desk, and I had my finger over the delete button on the title in KDP. And I, and I was about to fold it up and just say, well, you know what? Writing's not for me. Um, you know, these people don't appreciate it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take my ball and go home. I'm gonna delete it and be done with it. And, uh, and for some reason I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't. Um, but yeah, I, I vividly remember those and they sting and they still sting. Uh, I, I don't comment on reviews on, on the platforms. I don't respond to them personally because I don't believe an author should do that. I think re- uh, reviews are for readers and that's a reader space and authors should stay out of that. And so I don't ever, comment or, or respond, but I do read them and I'm human. And, and when I get a one star review, it hurts. And when I get a five star review, I'm happy. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, you know, I guess, yeah, it, it, it hurts. It, it will hurt. And I think any author who isn't stung by a, by a poor review or criticism is probably not trying hard enough. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it does hurt a lot. And it's it's very difficult to kind of absorb and, you know, objectively uh, accept that what you're getting. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I don't know, it, it leads me to the second question. I mean, uh, once I had a really harsh review, such a review that kind of, you know, uh, mm, it it made my other readers kind of notice it. It was so harsh. Yeah. So I ended up receiving emails from my fans saying that, you know, you shouldn't believe this. That's not true <laughs> and things like that. So you should maybe remember your very first fan mail as well. And how, how did that kind of, you know, how does it help into moving forward and continuing writing. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a good point you bring up about having that balance. That, that is really important. And uh, I, do, I do cherish the emails that, that I receive from, 
from readers, and I respond personally to everyone. I, I don't I don't have anyone behind my email address except me. So if you write me and you get a response, it's me. And uh, and I I've gotten those, and they are they're so uplifting. And and the people who I mean, you think about what it takes uh, to sit down and either have the courage and or the time to to write an artist after you've enjoyed their work and let them know that. I, I think that's so special and it's so rare. And I I'm thrilled and I don't take that for granted. Uh, I think statistically, the number of people who review a, uh, a book after reading it is, is about 1%. Mm-hmm. So very, very few people will ever leave a review. Uh, so the fact that someone is willing to sort of put their name uh, attached to a, um, a comment and send you an email, like to me that's just so special. And, and I, I keep and respond to all of those. And it's really the reason that I keep going. Um, if you're if you're doing this for money, you will eventually lose interest. It'll become a job, and and you'll want to do something else. But to have someone write to me and say, "Wow, you know, I I couldn't put this book down, and and I've been thinking about it, and it was I was just totally immersed in it. I was totally immersed in it, and I I didn't really care about you know the other worries I have. And and I think for me, I I'm so thrilled to hear that because I like my books to be an escape for people. Like when you go. Mm-hmm to the movies and, and for that two hours you're in a dark theater and you're entertained and you're not thinking about all of your other problems and your worries that you have. You're just enjoying yourself. And I think a good book can do that as well. And so when I hear people, when people tell me that, it just, it motivates me more and wants me to write even better stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Well, I'm, uh, and let's dig into and give some practical advice in that case. Let's say we have a newbie writer who is publishing his first book on Amazon. And uh, as we discussed, it's it's very important to have that balance and to have, you know, people who, who like your book and people who read your books. So when you're starting from very scratch, how and where do you find readers? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that, that, question of discoverability is really relevant whether you're a new writer or, or whether you're a seasoned writer because the way the internet and and the way the internet is these days uh if you don't have something current you quickly sort of drop below the stream and and below people's radar and you almost have to have to dig back out again so it, uh and and really you know this advice changes on almost a weekly basis. So uh, your listeners who are listening to this now, this may apply now, and it may be completely wrong in six months from now. But if I were a brand new writer right now, and I was just getting ready to publish my first book, your your biggest challenge is not sales. Um, your biggest challenge is discoverability. What you're trying to do is trying to get eyes on your work. And in order to do that, you have to sacrifice uh, your compensation, and I know this is not uh, this is not something we as writers embrace. I kind of cringe whenever I do it, but giving giving your book away for free to certain people at certain times uh, it does pay off, and and people are more likely to take a chance on a brand new writer if there's a low barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. So if you're putting your first book out and you're unknown and it's your only your first book and no one's ever heard of you and you're charging. Five ninety nine for the Kindle version. You're just probably not going to sell many books, and you're and and because you're not selling books, you're not beginning getting eyes on your work. So it's really in your best interest to to bring that barrier to entry as low as you can, especially when you're starting out. Uh, 
So KDP Select is a, is a great tool. It, it's a it's a tactic. It's not a long term strategy, but if you get your first book in there and and uh, and it's KDP Select, and if you're not familiar with how that works, that means you're exclusive to selling on Amazon, and in return for being exclusive, they give you five days out of 90 where you can make your book free. Mm-hmm. So for a new writer, and it's only a 90-day contract, so you can opt out of KDP Select after 90 days. But for a new writer, you know, go in for 90 days, give your book away for a couple days. Um, you might get a couple hundred or maybe even a couple thousand downloads. And those are people that are going to potentially open your book that never would have any other way. So um, that, that's, a, that's one example. But really, I think the, the, the bigger focus or the higher altitude perspective has to be that you want to, to make it as easy for people to read, to be introduced to your work as possible. And, and you probably have to sacrifice price to do that. Mm-hmm. And for the longer term thing, uh, how important do you think the personal branding is, like branding yourself as an author, as, as a writer's name? Yeah, I think it's... Uh, it's probably the single most important thing you can do besides the writing. Uh, you need to have you need to have a platform and a brand that um, that is unquestionable as to what the consumer is going to get. Because really, what we're talking about is business. So you you know you write and you're an artist, but but then you you're you're a business person as well, and you and you have to divorce yourself emotionally. You have to divorce your emotions from your art. And you then have to turn and look at it as a product. Uh, so in my example, if you, you, know, you go to my homepage, I hope it's pretty clear <laughs> what you're getting. It's, uh, absolutely, it's dark, <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know, like, and and, I, and um, I'm, you know, I think there are, there are author websites or blogs that I visit, and I'm really not quite sure what they're selling. And I think that's a problem. So it doesn't have, you don't even have to pick a genre. Um, like, I don't even think I have the word horror on my homepage. But if you convey what the reader's experience is going to be and make it clear to them what that experience is going to be, it doesn't matter whether I'm writing horror, dark fantasy, sci-fi. I have a wide range of products I can, I can sell to the consumer that they will accept because of my branding. Now, if I started writing romance, um, you know, <laughs> all, with my existing platform, that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> so you kind of have to see like how far can you go on the edges. But I kind of feel like I can write horror, dark fantasy, sci-fi, even mystery, thriller, suspense to a certain degree. And it's still within my brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. So uh, in that case, uh, what are you, I mean, I, I guess that uh, in all your books, you have a same trend of emotions that people who read your books are getting so apart from the psychological fear what else do they get that's yeah that's a great question and this is something i it's something that evolved and something that i developed but not something i i plan to do and i so i don't i wish i could describe how a writer could arrive at this but i only did it by writing so i don't really know any other way but what i started to realize as I was into my fourth and fifth novel, maybe maybe even later, maybe maybe it was the sixth novel, I, and I looked back at my work, and what I started to see was a theme develop. And I think this is really important, especially for people who don't normally read horror, because horror without some type of hope is really depressing. Mm-hmm. If, if it's just horror for the sake of 
the violence or for the sake of, of sadness, it's hard. I think it's hard for people to sustain that. Uh, and what I noticed when I look back at my work is that I had these elements of horror and I had these really dark moments, but I also had these thre- these threads of redemption that started to show up in my books. And so I think for me, that's that's what the reader gets beyond the fear and the anxiety and, and the horror and the fantasy is... Uh, uh, the theme of redemption runs through everything I write, and and it's it varies from book to book. But in every book, there's an opportunity. There's a, there's a sliver of hope. And I, as a, as someone who writes really dark stuff, I feel like that's important to have in there. Otherwise, it's hard for people to to be entertained by it. Okay, so you always have a light at the end of the tunnel. It might not be a bright light, but yes, there's there's usually some some sort of light or or halo of some kind at the end. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that, that that's great because it's you know uh, sometimes uh, people have such hard lives that you know if they end up being embraced by all this horror in the books itself, it, it might be too much <laughs> at some point. Yeah, and and it's mostly it's mostly through the characters development and the mm-hmm. character arc. And I think that's where, you know, people identify with certain characters of books. And and I have books where where some of the character most of the characters are awful. And and I know that's not conventional. And I know some readers really want a character to root for. And I try, but but in some <laughs> of the books there just aren't. But I think that the in the big story, like for example, I have a, a trilogy called the Hidden Evil trilogy. And then the first book, Preda's Realm, it's really dark. And it and there all the characters are are pretty nasty people. And but by the end of the trilogy, characters emerge with a thread of redemption, and they're moving towards something. So if you would judge that trilogy just on the first book, you would say, "Oh, this is awful. I have I have no character to root for." But if you stick with it, those those characters emerge over a longer thread. So it's there, and I don't always do the best job at it, but I do try and make sure that each character is working towards something that will at least bring a little bit of light into the story. So how much is the character dictating on where to go while you are writing? Uh, The character, you know, really the character is king. And I I had a, I received some really harsh criticism from another writer early on. And I, this was for my Portal Arcane book reversion. I asked a a writer to, to beta read it for me. And she came back and she said, I, this, is, this is terrible. She said, I have, she's like, the, the writing is good. The mechanics are fine. But she said, um, your character's motivations are not clear. And, and I don't know why they're there. And I don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it. And that was really sort of a pivotal moment for me. And I realized that, that I have to be very intentional with the characters and what they want to do and why they're doing it. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a plotter. I don't outline extensively. I sort of have a, a general direction of where I want to go, and then I write towards that. But, but I let the characters sort of develop on their own, uh, and I do that because I don't want the characters to be really two dimensional. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're strictly villains or they're strictly good guys, that's kind of boring. And, and if I would plot it out, that's how it would end up. So what I try and do is I, I try and write, and I let the character develop and. Sometimes they do things, and I, I'm sure as a writer you've had this experience where you type something and you go, oh, uh-huh. I don't know where that came from <laughs> or why they did that, but it works, and you, and you go with it. And those are the those are sort of that, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and they're really intangible. You can't teach them. You can't prepare people. You can't manufacture them. They just kind of happen. 
And I feel like if you if you overplan a novel or if you're going strictly by an outline, you have less of an opportunity to have those moments. Yeah, well, I have the feeling that actually if you overplot, uh, you end up uh, with an artificial story. And it's not very credible. It's not very realistic because it has been very organized and very planned, which is not how life works usually. So, you know, it's uh, overplotting. I, I don't do that either. And uh, I also think that in your genre, you know, the more real it feels scary it should be so <laughs> in your <laughs> case maybe that's you know it, it's even better not to overplot in this case so uh maybe like one of the last questions um have you ever been tempted to leave any of the stories that you've written uh to leave them in in what way like you know as if uh, you were one of the characters or you 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 were in those situations oh, oh yeah um you know there are, uh most of the, most of the characters are are in these worlds that i create that are sort of on the edge um they're it's not literary fiction so there are contemporary settings but the circumstances are usually so different that it would be it would be hard. Um, so it kind of goes back to where we started. Uh, most of my stories are not about serial killers or real crime dramas. They're more about uh, they're more psychological. So, for example, I have a series where a character uh, finds themselves in a in a parallel dimension. So it's it's very Earth like. And all the same rules apply as far as gravity and and creatures and you know they're they're humans in a human like world, but it's not it's not Earth and and it's not their world and they're trying to figure out how to get back. So I think some of the scenarios I create would be would be hard to sort of replicate replicate in a real world setting if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, well, um, like. Any last words, any uh, advice you would like to give to newbie writers? Anything that kind of, you know, you wish you knew in the very beginning, but no one told you before? Yeah, I would, I would say I, um, for me, if the, the biggest piece of advice I can give someone who's just starting out is be patient. Uh, it, it takes time for you to develop your voice as a writer. It takes time to understand how to unfold a story over 50 or 60 or 90,000 words. Uh, and, and I'm still doing that. Like, I, I'm not saying like, oh yeah, and you're, you're going to get to a point where you, where you get it all. Like I'm every, every, every novel I write, I'm pushing to be a better writer. I'm trying things. I'm, I'm learning the craft and that's not going to happen in one book. And you're not going to necessarily become rich by publishing one book. I mean, uh, the overnight success story, it happens, but it doesn't happen to very many people. And, 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 and usually when you peel back the, the story a little bit, the overnight success is typically not overnight. It's usually someone who was in obscurity for a long time exactly. and then had success, and that's different. So um, I would say you know, just, just be patient. Um, you're you're going to you're going to doubt yourself. You're going to have moments where you want to quit. You're going to have people tell you you should quit. And if you listen to all that, then then you will quit and and you won't write. And so I would say, just persevere, be patient. And at a certain point, if writing's for you, you'll know it. And if it's not, you'll know it. But that should come from 
from inside and that should come from your from your own sort of judgment and not based on what other people are telling you. Yeah, great advice. Well, thank you very much for coming over. I wish you lots of success with your upcoming books and I hope that you won't lose the teenage spirit. Well, thanks. I don't plan on it. <laughs> thanks for having me. I had a really good time. Thank you. Well, that was it for today. As you have most probably noticed from the laughs we had in there, I truly enjoyed the interview. You can get all the show notes, including the link to the video about which James mentioned in his interview at www.annialexander.com slash 78. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review to help the podcast grow and succeed so we can inspire and encourage more people. Take care as always, keep writing, don't give up, and I'll meet you in the next episode. Are you struggling trying to figure out how to sell copies of your book? especially the first 100 copies? The Author Marketing Institute is offering access to their latest free video course called Selling the First 100 Copies of Your Book. This is the course everyone should have when they started publishing. It goes through all the basics from starting a mailing list to experimenting with different prices. If you follow the instructions in this course, you should be primed and ready to sell your first 100 copies, if not many more. Sign up for free at www.authormarketinginstitute.com.